Well, hello, Gail. How are you today? Good morning. I'm really good, actually. Really good. How are you? Oh wow! The pitch went up. Even there was that sounded like you. I don't know. Came back from a hit session. Hit some uh, CrossFit or something this morning. <laughs> that sounds so eighties. <laughs> no, just a plain old run. But it was really good. Ah, excellent. I do like um, a little bit of an exercise myself. I just don't like like you always have to factor in the time it takes to clean yourself afterwards. Did you clean yourself afterwards, Gail? Did I clean myself? This is not the opening session I thought we were going to have. But um, as you've gone there, yeah, sure. I had a shower. Ah, excellent. I like that you also shower and you don't bath. You don't bath, do you? I, I mean, I do bath. Not not on a Monday. I wouldn't bath on a Monday morning, but I would bath on a... Well, I had a lovely bath on Sunday afternoon. What about you? No, there's never a reason to bath, Gail. Because baths are just a really complex way to get differently dirty. You're really <laughs> just moving the dirt elsewhere on yourself. It's, it's a horrible. And then people just lie there simmering in their own filth. Whoa, you've thought this through. And they call this relaxation. <laughs> oh, but you're going to hate what happens in my family. And I don't think we're that weird. Okay, deep breath. I might say, hey, I'm going to have a bath to my husband and he'll go, oh, leave it in because I'll jump in after you. And then we will definitely make one of the children have it because we think we're doing the the right thing because it means that we're not using up too much hot water. (laughs) Have I lost you? I mean, you're resigning from the podcast. My word, that is hot. This is a horrible thing I'm hearing about your country. And I feel like I need to send over aid or something. African people, if you are listening, please send over shower heads to <laughs> the Europeans. One dollar a day could save a British family and give them a shower. That is our episode today on clean water. We are saving the British. Hello and welcome to an idiot's guide to saving the world. I'm Loiso Matinga. And I am Gail Galley. This is the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world, but doesn't quite know where to start. In this episode, is the world running out of water? I see what you've done there. You've brought us into this goal topic, haven't you? This is goal number six, water and sanitation. Yes, girl, that's what I did. Not just a pretty face over here. Water and sanitation. So this is specifically talking about that good, clean, drinkable water, not that salty, sharky, you could lose your life type water. This is the life giving water because we don't think about the numbers, but when you put the numbers on, it's like it's 80 liters, you know, that's 40 days of drinking water that, you know, that you clean your armpits with every time you simmer in your nasty. Wow. 40 days of drinking water is one bath. Yeah. Wow. No, that is bad. You know, if you think about our previous episode where we talked about the fact that 70% of the earth is water, so that's good, but only 1%, I think, is usable to drink. We're living on this big ball of irony. I mean, I grew up in a place where pretty much didn't have running water. Uh, Not to sound sad, I had a great childhood, thank you very much. But, you know, water was very different. You were aware as a person because we got ours from a big, you know, we had these big two tanks of water that would be uh, on the side of the house running from the roof. So rainwater catchment was a thing when we were growing up. And my job as a child was to always check the water level of the house. Yeah, so this is the crazy thing we live in. It is such a scarce thing that too many people still 
you know, one in three to be exact globally, do not have access to clean drinking water, which is a staggering amount. Like one in three, let's put that in actual numbers. So if there's about seven billion people on the planet, that means there's two and more a bit billion. billion. If there's one in three people don't have it, yeah. well, that's already more than two billion people aren't able to turn a tap on, wash their hands during COVID. I know that where it is scarce, it's usually women and girls, as usual, who get shafted and they have to go and get it, which means they miss school, they might get attacked. I can see it's at the heart of everything. I didn't realize it was so high as more than 2 billion people don't have it. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? All these problems have problems. Like dirty water causes diarrhea, for example, which kills a child under five every two minutes. There's another scary statistic. Oh, there's another horrible statistic. I mean, I wonder whether, and tell me if this is not true and I'm making an assumption here, but living where you live, this sounds like this is much more of a thing. It's just not a thing, I think, that people in the Northern Hemisphere, certainly in Britain, we just take water so for granted. It's everywhere, right? Like the thought of not having enough or the tap not working. But do you think where you live, it's much more of a thing because you have much less of it? Or is that an assumption I shouldn't be making? No, I think it's a, it's a fair assumption. I think for sure, yeah, we we even had what we called day zero, which was the day the taps would stop running in Cape Town. This was 2018 because of the drought and the dams were critical level low. I remember this period because, you know, I was in Johannesburg and uh, the rivalry between Joburg and Cape Town is so real that we were watching this with, you know, shock or and slight excitement. At, <laughs> but to get more of a, an idea of what that experience was, let's hear it from someone who experienced it live in Cape Town at the time. My name is Marichen. I'm a medical doctor in a little town called East London in South Africa. After three years of drought, a metropolitan area of nearly four million faces tough choices. Cape Town, South Africa could become the world's first major city to run out of water. The reason for the water crisis was multifactorial. At the end of apartheid with the administrative handover, The city was warned that the infrastructure is not adequate for the rate of growth of the population. The story goes that dams were not increased in size, infrastructure was not strengthened. And then on top of that, there was a three-year drought. Normally, I would be completely underwater standing here. But if you look back, you can see the dam levels are critically low. In 2017, when I first moved to Cape Town, the city was already in the middle of severe water restrictions. The city has restricted residents to just over 13 gallons. It's about uh, 50 litres of water a day. Also, simple things like nobody can wash their car. We were encouraged not to flush the toilet, you know, kind of if it's yellow, let it mellow, if it's brown, flush it down. And then we were encouraged to catch up the water in our showers. So I had probably a 20 litre bucket in my shower. It caught up all of the water while I waited for the water to to heat up and then switching entirely to showering as opposed to having a bath. And hotels in the city, well, actually there was a point in time where they got a lot of flack 
for allowing visitors to have like a nice warm proper bath but eventually they took away the the plugs we have really reached a point of no return we can no longer ask people to stop wasting water we now have to force them to stop So we were told that on day zero, all of the supplies to houses, private properties would be cut off. There would be no water coming out of the taps. And for personal use, people would have to queue at select points. So when people started finding out about that, they became a little bit more serious. People are now waiting in long lines stockpiling water for the so-called day zero. We worried about things like people being desperate and storming or people trying to collect double for their household. How would we how would we control for that? Places like public hospitals, their taps would not be entirely turned off. I mean, if you think about things like scrubbing up surgery, we couldn't afford to scrub up in, you know, a communal bucket. There was a time earlier in my in my training period where I worked in a hospital, a rural hospital, and we actually went for three days without water. For personal consumption, we used the rainwater tanks. You did kind of just hope and pray that you wouldn't get sick from the rainwater. In the hospital, you have alcohol hand rub, but I certainly wouldn't trust alcohol hand rub if I'm about to stick my hands into someone's abdominal cavity. Its big unit was maternity. Childbirth is a messy process. You know, you have a lot of bodily fluids all over the place and historically all over the world, postpartum sepsis was a major cause of maternal mortality. So being clean is extremely important. After every delivery, you need to clean up the floors, the bedding, you know, laundry needs to be washed. It was a very intense and stressful experience, both as healthcare workers, as well as private people who required water for daily life. One thing that assisted with averting day zero was the large public hospitals in Cape Town had old piping and plumbing systems. So I know that two of the major academic hospitals in the city hired experts to go through the whole hospital system and find the little leaks, taps that maybe have drip, 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 that nobody's bothered to fix for years. And they managed to save a lot of water in that way. I think public buy-in made a massive difference in averting day zero. And ultimately, obviously, it rained. And if it hadn't rained, I want to say who knows what would have happened, but we we do have an idea of what would have happened. Yeah, we do have an idea of what could happen because all of a sudden, a wealthy city, beautiful city, it's like Armageddon, drought-stricken place. It's a crazy thought to think about. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, it definitely made like waves all over the world, I think. The business community, I remember talking about it because people like, you know, Unilever and Rekka Benkiza, these people rely on 
customers having water to be able to use their soap and their, you know, dishwasher stuff and their hair. And I remember they were making special contingency plans. And I remember thinking, that's weird. Like the, my image of Cape Town is lush and gorgeous, not a place that runs out of water. Oh, for sure. It, it kind of was a needed wake up call for the world because if it hit anywhere else it would just be that same old story that we know you know and and, and it's great that you bring up the complexity of water and how different industries are affected by it because we don't think about just how much it touches our lives and when you think about you know things like people can't you know shampoo their hair because you got to sacrifice that and now it's just a city of you know white people with dreadlocks and who wants that <laughs> and it's brought to light something that's already been experienced by other major cities around the world who are having to now figure out their water situation Places like Los Angeles and Sao Paulo, Singapore, you know, and even, Gail, places like London. No, that, now you're getting silly. Got water everywhere. Doesn't stop raining. Got a massive river. There's quite a lot of hippies, though, but I think we're good. I can see Los Angeles is like a problem, right? Because it's hot. There shouldn't be anyone living there. So it's not an earthquake. Cause they're going to oh, sort my... of, you know, be thirsty to death. But I think we're all right, aren't we? Oh, my sweet, sweet, naive Gail. You guys are going to run out of water soon or at least have water problems. I know it's hard to think about that when you're pretty much living in water. You guys are above land, underwater constantly. You don't have to take my word for it. Maybe you will listen to a, a fellow Brit, somebody who knows a little bit better. My friend, Lucy Easthope. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Lucy, yes, welcome to the podcast, but can you just confirm that my co-host is insane and tell me that London is not going to run out of water because we've got loads of it? I'm afraid he is right. It is something we are very worried about and London is predicted to run out of water by 2050. Ha! What? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> can you please enlighten my friend as to who you are and what do you do? Yes, I am a professor in After Disaster and the co-founder of the After Disaster Network at the University of Durham. And I'm a research fellow in mass fatalities and pandemics at the University of Bath. And I specialise in getting us ready for all the things that can happen to us. You actually know stuff. Thank you for joining this podcast of fools. Um, and also, how exciting. You're up at the University of Bath. I live in Bath. I'm sat in Bath right now. Um, honestly, what are you preparing us for right now? Where's going to be all right in England? Just, if, you know, out of interest. How far does this problem extend? Is Bath okay? <laughs> Not at all, no. We, uh, particularly in uh, the South and the nation's capital, London, uh, we have a lot to learn from Cape Town. So that's what we're trying to do at the moment. Told you. <laughs> so the hang on, rewind. What do you mean? How can we possibly be running out of water? I'm, I'm challenging you. I'm fact-checking. A rainfall, rivers, seas don't necessarily mean that we've got the infrastructure uh, supported to get the water around. So we have a very neglected infrastructure. Uh, we haven't invested in it in the way that we needed to. We think we're much more resilient than we are. We think that, you know, we, we know how to do these things. But in Britain, we've got very used to turning on the tap and out comes very clean, safe water. Other countries could really show us up here. I'm absolutely horrified. This is the strangest thing to listen to a British person talking about Britain and saying lack of infrastructure, badly managed infrastructure, not ready infrastructure, droughts, no water coming out of taps. In the right accent, it just sounds like old African. <laughs> <laughs> 
You guys will be donating us toilets. Please. <laughs> we have not thought this Lucy through. Lucy, I'll be begging. <laughs> Let us in. How imminent is this threat? Well, there's about 25 years of contingency. Yeah. But the problem is time's ticking. You know, we've just lost another two years to a focus uh, entirely on the pandemic. And what we find with emergency planners is uh, there's a lot of exhaustion and fatigue. You know, when you go into Parliament this week and say, can we talk about the water crisis? I'm not going to get very far. So time ticks by all the time. The other problem that we have in disaster planning in the UK is that loss of access to clean water is one uh, consequence of many of our other bigger risks. So, for example, one of our biggest national risks is flooding which is loads of water, but the wrong sort of water. But one of the things I'm always very interested in is learning from places that have had other types of disasters. So particularly things like earthquakes in New Zealand taught us a lot about how communities have to come together when they lose access to water. And then, of course, we learned a lot from Cape Town, which was simply about a city running dry. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. So it's not like we don't have enough of it. It's that we're not managing what we have or what we get why, what is, can you just explain the connection again between a flood and running out of water? Yeah, so contamination can be a huge issue and having to perhaps close down supplies or managing the issues with uh, overwhelming of treatment plants. And, and then what happens is we then get a secondary problem, which is our backup, which is often things like Bowser's or very unfortunately for the environment, plastic water bottle delivery is also disrupted by flooding. One thing also is that we, we are prepared for increasing heat waves. Um, and because our water is not managed well, in peacetime, when we see heat waves, we are we are very, very prone now to moving to drought measures. So as the climate warms, we can expect to see more of that. I can't work out. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that is that like we're good under pressure? That sounds very British. So when the water runs out, then then you'll see. Then we'll be then tremendous. Then you'll see us. Yes. Then we'll win all the crickets. We will pump it from the sea. We will pump it from the reservoirs. <laughs> We will steal it from South Africa. <laughs> yes, all of those things. And I mean, I think, I mean, one of, the, one of the problems we have is when we test this. So we test it in like a play game, like you would with children. You'd say, now go and play uh, pretend disaster. One of the problems <laughs> is we can't always fully factor in how brilliant the communities will be. So, for example, in New Zealand, a message went out from local government to build your own composting toilet to cope with the fact that the sewage system had completely broken down and people did. And one of the difficulties for me when I'm writing scenarios is just how much brilliance can I assume from the British public, which again... <laughs> Sorry, I've got to pause and lol at that. Let's just assume none. Let's assume very low. We're not New Zealand. Let's just, let's just assume we're going to be crap. <laughs> so, so when I got back from New Zealand, I had a photo album that was just full of pictures of people's loos, because not only were the loos... <laughs> really beautiful but they drew, they drew messages of hope on the walls and they had fairy lights around the composting toilet and that that is my dream for when London runs out of water and I, I refuse to let that go <laughs> oh my god I love that. I, I don't love because I sort of do love the way you said that's my dream for when London runs out <laughs> just, Lucy has the privilege of having the perfect accent to say crazy things and we just accept it <laughs> but then when you talk about the people of London I must ask at what level is this knowledge common? Is it amongst the intellectuals? Is it a political conversation? Is it amongst the people? Where is the conversation now? That's a very, very good point. And again, I think the pandemic has really highlighted for us as emergency planners, the difference between what we think is public conversation and what people are actually worrying about day to day. So 
everything I've told you today is available on the mayor's office as a strategy and as a worry. But what's been really interesting in the last couple of years is people saying, you didn't tell us. So what does that mean? One big duty on me as a disaster planner is not to run around all the time going, you think that's a worry. Let me tell you about this thing over here. I have a a huge responsibility to talk about other risks that they also now live along with in in quite a optimistic way. But you're like challenge Annika for our listeners in the UK. (laughs) Here comes Lucy with her hair on fire. What's she shouting about? (laughs) But I really get that need. Like we have that in all the issues and all the goals is how do you, without straying into doom comms, which like motivates no one, how do you get people to take this seriously and then take their own actions seriously? So actually, what is your thing, apart from or becoming New Zealandish and building our own loo, which I'm immediately going to do, by the way, after this recording. But what can normal citizens of London do? This one for me is is a really big question about individual resilience as well. Many other countries have a much greater awareness of what water, uh, what what luxury water is, and how it keeps things moving. And one of the sad things about the polarisation that we're seeing around the climate change debate is that it's stopping everyday discussions about things like water butts and hosepipe use and you know not patioing your front drive. So individually, there are some things that we can do. Um, you know, some prepping can help a little bit. We're not probably at the stage in the UK yet where we're talking about having our own sanitation systems. Certainly some of us may be having conversations about composting loos. Politically, what I would love to see more people do is when there are things like local elections and when there are things like mayoral elections, is is drilling down on this specific issue. Because the, the elected leaders that will be coming into London will need to understand this issue. Mm. Especially for an issue that's 25 years away, um, and like, not away, but like that is the disaster point of it. In in the meantime, is there a plan? Are all these uh, infrastructural um, solves currently happening because somebody wanted to win mayor? So they, you know, you must be seen digging. <laughs> a very good point. And of course, you know, the infrastructure is 25 years away. The loss of, of fresh, safe drinking water could be tomorrow. Oh, wow. So as I said, you know, one of the things about the loss of, of access to water is it's a subset within a lot of our other plans. It's a subset within terrorism plans. It's a subset within cyber attack plans. Um, and it, it, what we call ourselves in disaster planning is we're very much the Cinderella service. People don't know that we exist. The other thing is that water is one of those scenarios in a disaster plan that gets quite exhausting to test. Once you've got your bottled water supply and you've got a bowser at the end of the road, standpipes, what else can you really do? And then you're completely reliant on the private sector. So in the UK, our water companies are commercial. We have usually great working relationships, but they are not publicly owned. And we are reliant on what is a commercial business with shareholders and commercial secrets. You know, they will be very um, protective of their information to work alongside us. And that is that is quite a big challenge. What I'm getting from all of this is is not just the idea of maybe just London, you know, having a water crisis in future, which is endlessly fascinating to me but the realization of the complexities of the idea of clean water are they places that are leading in in dealing with water resilience in the future in its complex ways is there anyone who is getting it right in the world that you've seen 
this is quite an interesting challenge of perhaps being quite developed in terms of our water security before and we've now let it waste. Where we have to be very humble is as many other places around the world that do a scarce water management better. One of the things that I've seen through visiting the Middle East, for example, is salination schemes and the use of seawater. And I, I, I think we're still on very much a journey around the longer term adaptation of using the water all around us. But then, like in terms of like your your current water situation, you guys are you said you're private. There are private companies that pretty much run the water, which is uh, different to here, which is uh, it's a government. These are these are government entities. Which would you say is better? The privatization and ownership of water companies has become a hugely political issue and, and a battle between our our main parties. I don't put the public sector on a pedestal. They are just as bad as as private sector at perhaps not getting the job done, not sharing the information when we need to. We have a legislative framework that means the private sector have to come to the table with the information that we need. The challenge, and this is being raised a lot at the moment, is does it ask them to do enough? And my big issue in 24 and three quarter years time will be that when it dawns on particularly the people of London, that perhaps the infrastructure hasn't been upgraded in the way it needed to. But, you know, bonuses have been paid out to shareholders Mm. for 24 years Mm. earlier, how that will feel. And that's where that private public divide really comes in. Do the water companies like you or not like you? Like, do they see you coming and go, oh, crap, Lucy's coming to (laughs) ask some difficult questions? Or are they like, oh, thank goodness, Lucy can tell us what to do? (laughs) Like, uh, what's your, what's the dynamic? I think everybody goes with the first one. <laughs> they see me coming. Yeah, I show myself out of a lot of meetings. Um, yeah, no, it's um, it, it, it's nobody's ever pleased to see the disaster aftermath, woman. Um, I think what tends to happen is is it very much depends on what they what the environment is. The the time when I am trouble is when the incident happens. Or, you know, certainly at the moment, the time would be if somebody said, "Who knew?" and in twenty five years old me says, well, I did. And we've been shouting about it for years. And so, you know, one of the things that I do think, and it's a great time to be alive in terms of things like social media, is there is a a really important point with these goals about holding organisations to account and creating a trail of breadcrumbs in the same way as we see with other areas of social justice. Um, You know, and the right to water, right to water pipelines has always been a kind of platform for activism. And so I I would hope I'm not always welcome because I, I hope I am raising some difficult questions at the moment. And is there a role for optimism in what you do? Is that positively dangerous? Oh, gosh, yes. We are all so optimistic. We are pessimistic optimists. So we plan constantly to the reasonable worst case scenario. <laughs> so British. Even your optimism, even your optimism is pessimistic. That's right. Oh, things are going horribly well. This could end badly. <laughs> what we are, so we plan constantly to what's called a reasonable worst case scenario. So I'm on record as asking the government to plan for both a Brexit, no deal and a pandemic at the same time in 2018 and being dismissed as a fantasist. You know, we we want to build in scenarios. We want to get people talking. But there's always hope because as I've, I've just got a new book out, When the Dust Settles by Lucy Eastoak, which is about my life in disaster. By always seeing the aftermath of disaster, you also get to see the rebuild and the recovery. And you, you know, you open your mind to the learning. I mean, that's why it was a privilege to learn from Cape Town. 
Well, you have massively reframed the issue, I think, for most British people and probably most Western people I think, who think water, hygiene-related issues around water, scarcity, droughts, infrastructure problems. I think we, we think we gifted all of that to India, Africa, and now we help by putting in some pumps and, you know, maybe sending out the odd doctor. Whereas I think what you've done for us has made us understand it's everywhere. And if it's going to happen in London, then it can happen anywhere. And I loved what you said about we need to be humble and learn from people who have been working with this reality for longer and are much better at it, frankly. Lucy Easthope, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Oh, my days. That was fascinating. Yeah, uh, I think that's why you were so shocked in the first place about all of this, because you're living in the first world and you're living in a quote unquote wet country. And I think it's that natural thing that the human brain does where it thinks things will either stay the same or they'll get better into the future. And the real mental hurdle to jump over before you can take action is a realization that they could actually get worse. Yeah. So this is what this global goal is all about. Look, we're just scratching the surface of it. It's a massive goal. And we have to expand water and sanitation around the developing world. But this goal also needs us to look at how we use our own water efficiently. And look, as ever, governments and water companies have got a big role to play. But what can we do ourselves? Because if you look at the individual changes that got made in Cape Town, then that helped avert the worst of day zero. And I've only really just thought about this, but we are all talking about our carbon footprints day in, day out. Nobody seems to be talking about our water footprints. Shall we all do a recap of things we can do to support this goal? Yeah, I will get the clock going and go. Consider what you buy in terms of your clothes and don't buy fast fashion. Nope, buy secondhand instead. It's fashionable too. Personally, I'm never taking a bath again. That's worse, but okay. Reduce your showers to four minutes only is also a solution. <laughs> Eat less meat because meat has a huge water footprint. Yeah, please. And fix leaking taps. They lose so much water more than you think. Dishwasher's much better than hand washing. Nine times less water used, I understand. Close the tap when you're brushing your teeth. Stop using sprinklers. Oh, yeah. Because it really pisses me off. Stop sprinkling the lawn in this country, people, for Oof. God's sake. It'll be fine. If it's not raining today, it's going to rain tomorrow. Just stop it. It's silly. Here's the crazy thing about lawns. The history of lawns is fascinating. It was a very, like, um, bourgeois, like, the very rich would have lawns as a way to show that they don't even need to use all their land because they've got so much of it to actually plant plants. They can just use it for a lawn, which is a high maintenance thing. Oh my gosh. It's a status thing. It's an, it's an old school, I've got more money than I need. It's an old school status thing that the middle class has adopted. <gasps> yeah. And now the middle class adopted it as a way of like showing that, you know, I'm now in the suburbs, I'm affluent. I too shall have this lawn. There is no actual need for a lawn. It's just a cultural thing that got passed down that is now causing a lot of trouble. I love this. When did you get so wise? I YouTube fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty good way to end this episode. Just go, if you're worried about water wasted, go Google fucked up water and you pretty much learn it all. I think this has been an inspiring episode. Personally, I'm, I'm never going to take a bath again. I'm leaving London <laughs> as fast as I can. 
Um, and hopefully we've given a bit of an idea to everybody listening about what we can do to save this critical stuff that keeps us alive. So if you want to find out more tips and how to support, go to globalgoals.org. But Loiso, I'll see you next time. Oh yes, I will see you next time and we will solve yet another problem by educating ourselves. I am Loiso Madinga signing out. And I'm Gail Galley. Goodbye. Want to go ahead and do the credits? Oh yeah, I like this. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is a Radio Wolfgang production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yelene Goffin, Holly Fisher and Kieran Carruthers. If you like what you heard, subscribe. Please leave us a review because it will help other people find us and the more people that find us and the more people are saving the world. I've gone Italian again. This podcast, thank you so much, is supported by Google.org who bring the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. Find out more at Google.org. Thank you.